2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, the love stories of two women, two centuries apart, in the new memoir from Nell Stevens, Mrs Gaskell and Me. Nell Stevens lives in London where she teaches creative writing at Goldsmiths. She has a PhD in Victorian literature from King's College London and an MFA in fiction from Boston University. Previously, the author of Bleaker House, Nell's new book, Mrs. Gaskell and Me Two Women, Two Love Stories, Two Centuries Apart, we're going to be talking about today. Nell, welcome to Little Atoms.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: I'd normally ask you to describe the book and specifically in this case there is a disclaimer at the beginning that does more than the usual some names have been changed to protect the innocent or whatever so how would you describe the book?
3: I always land on this highly unsatisfactory term sort of memoir and it satisfies absolutely no one it doesn't satisfy me but it's the closest I can come to what I've done with both Mrs Gaskell and me and my first book Bleaker House which is to use my own life and restrict myself in no way by doing that. Um, I'm primarily utterly interested in telling stories. I'm also very interested in using life for that purpose but I have never made a decision to stick to accuracy rather than intrigue and I've let myself do that and that's why both my books have very slippery disclaimers in them, which is a genre I love. I love the memoir disclaimer. People have done really interesting things with it, so I have tried to add to that with with the disclaimer for Mrs. Gaskell and me.
2: There's two tracks to this book. There's a sections that are addressed to Elizabeth Gaskell in the second person, and then a narrative that is your own, more contemporary narrative That's about right. you basically struggling to uh, to complete a PhD about yes. Victorian <laughs> literature. And so, again, obviously with the memoir that's about yourself, what you've just described fits. The idea, you know, you've changed some names, might have changed some locations or whatever, but essentially what you're telling is things that have happened to you. But in terms of the the Mrs Gaskell sections, how have those sections been researched?
3: So the material in them is material that I research during my PhD that was the beginning of the book it's not kind of forced in that sense a lot of the material got cut from my thesis so this book was a chance to redeem the stuff that I actually found far more interesting than what ended up in my thesis in the end so it has a basis in really genuinely rigorous academic research of the kind that my very beleaguered academic supervisor got me eventually to do. But with that, I, I've i jumped off from that. And the second person is really important to me in this book. It's not a biography. There is an amazing biography of Gaskell by Jenny Uglo that I really don't think can be topped for a while. And this book is certainly not trying to do that. The second person was a way to revel in subjectivity, essentially, to say, I'm looking at you, Mrs Gaskell, and this is what I see. So there's this kind of I lurking behind those second person sections in that sense. I think of it as a book that's almost entirely in the first person because it is kind of exploring the fact that I really, really cannot know her. And the scraps of materials that we have, her letters, her books, are completely insufficient to have any sense of who this person really was. We're all using huge amounts of imagination when we talk about figures from the past and I wanted to sit in that and revel in that and get things wrong as necessary and you know in the narrative about my academic work there's a lot of getting things wrong and I wanted to sort of play with that and have fun with that and say you know this is my Mrs Gaskell she's certainly not yours (laughs) and someone else would use the same material and see something completely different and that's brilliant I think
2: we were aware of the the constraints that people that were writing at that time were under. But, you know, she was friends with, I mean, I guess you couldn't call Charlotte Bronte Mrs. Bronte because you'd have got them confused because there were so many of them. (laughs) But why is is Elizabeth Gaskell still remains known as Mrs. Gaskell?
3: I have such a hard time with it. I was thinking about this earlier as well. I think it, it has to be fundamentally because on some level it just suits her. And that's really uncomfortable for us. I'm the sort of person who feels personally affronted when my friends change their names after they get married. I'm really not a sort of Mrs kind of a person. (laughs) And yet I have chosen to call her Mrs Gaskell, which is what she put on her books when she was publishing. And it does just fit. She had this intense domestic life. She had much more than that as well. But a large part of... The things that she thought about were these domestic issues. She had four daughters whose lives she was incredibly involved in. Um, She had a husband who was... Someone called him a workaholic today. I would call him a recluse. He really didn't like leaving. He wouldn't travel. She loved to travel and he wouldn't travel. He hated foreign food, this kind of thing. And she was completely tethered to this house in Manchester and this husband. She travelled a lot, but that was where she came back to all the time. And her letters are absolutely full of domestic detail. So for all that she is an extraordinarily political writer and for all that she has made some incredible choices in her life and done some really extreme things that buck the trends of what a Victorian wife would do, I come back to this missus with her, awkwardly but residedly at this point, I think.
2: So as as well as the the Cranfords and the the Mary Bartons that we're familiar with, she also wrote a biography of, of Charlotte Bronte. She did. Got in a lot of trouble for it.
3: <laughs> she did, and that was sort of one of my starting points for writing this book. It was during the period before my first book came out, which was Bleak House, and that was, again, a sort of memoir. And I was having, as all debut writers do, intense anxiety about how it was going to be received, and I was worrying that people wouldn't understand the project and that... People who I'd written about would get angry and there were very, very long meetings with lawyers and that kind of thing that were fascinating and absolutely terrifying. And at the same time as having all of these feelings, I was reading about Mrs Gaskell's Life of Charlotte Bronte and and everything that happened after that was published, which, just to sort of gloss it, lots of people threatened to sue her, Everyone who's mentioned it seemed to have some kind of objection to the way that they were portrayed. She felt she couldn't get it right. Her lawyer, she was away travelling in Rome while all this was happening. In her absence, her lawyer issued retractions in her name and she was written about in very unkind terms by various newspapers. She was getting abusive letters from people in America who she'd never met who were claiming that they had been portrayed in the book. It was really, really a nightmare of the kind that all writers, I think, fear. And so I was reading this and having my own fears about exactly this kind of reception, which is in some ways unique to nonfiction, I think, the problem of how do you write about real life and how do you tell the truth if you're writing? And she was coming up against this issue of her own subjectivity and and her inability to see what could possibly have happened from all different angles. And so I began the book from that point of just exploring my own fears through this horrible experience that she had, and that was very cathartic for me and, and useful for me because she is indomitable and continued to write and got over it. But she she did find it extraordinarily traumatic at the time.
2: And as you said, she, she deals with it by basically sodding off to Rome with her daughters and herself go off to Rome for a few months. And when she gets there, there is this, as there often was, this sort of, like, community of expat artists that are sort of, you know, living and spending time together and working together. And yeah. Tell us of some of the people who were there.
3: So this group just absolutely fascinates me. It's quite a unique group of people for this period in time. It was a combination of British and American artists. There were other nationalities, but those were the sort of predominant groups, and they mingled there was an extraordinary female sculptor called Harriet Hosmer, who was this very, very strong-willed woman who'd traveled from America. She made these extraordinary, enormous neoclassical sculptures. She rode a horse like a man through the streets of Rome and scandalized everyone. And she wore men's clothes and slept with lots of women and just had this extraordinarily powerful queer existence in Rome that she couldn't really have had anywhere else. There was another sculptor called William Wetmore Story who also crops up in the book who's this American host essentially who's just friends with absolutely everyone and throws these extraordinary parties and they have a theatre in their rooms and they put on plays and they all play the parts in the plays they've written and it is this kind of extraordinary culture of artistic exchange that they have and they talk about it as though it's a, they know that it's a charmed existence. They call it a fairyland, that this is this place that they can go and be real artists and and not be bothered in the ways they are at home by their home lives. And that's what Mrs Gaskell walks into, this writer who at home is completely plagued by domestic concerns. And she arrives with all of these anxieties about her book and just steps into this world where people are treating her like an author. And she gets to live that life for three months and she calls it later the tip-top point of her life.
2: Also into this milieu comes a guy, American, Charles Eliot Norton. So who was he?
3: So he's a younger American critic, essentially. He's from Boston. He was friends with all sorts of intellectual Bostonians, um, loosely sort of associated with transcendentalists in Boston. And he is described, I think, by Henry James, I may have that wrong, as having a genius for friendship, and that is who he is. He's this extraordinarily charming, smart young man who just has this amazing bond with Mrs. Gaskell from almost the minute they meet. They just click together and they feel that they have something in common. And that's kind of the starting point for A Strand of the book, is exploring that relationship and and the extent to which we can call that a love story. She's older than him, she's married, they live in different countries. After they leave Rome, he goes back to America, she goes back to Manchester. And kind of feeling out the sense of that being actually quite a beautiful love story in its own way, conducted over letters and very mutedly, because propriety dictates that you can't write real love letters in that situation. And maybe they wouldn't have wanted to. I posit in the book that they would have on some level. But they have this sort of charmed few months in Rome, and he brings her flowers every morning and shows her all the sights. And this really is the kind of defining moment of joy in her life. She talks about it for the rest of her life with such intense nostalgia. And it's, it's nostalgia for Rome and, and for the group of people who were there, but it's particularly nostalgia for this time spent with Charles Eliot Norton.
2: And how does that experience change her as a writer in the years to come?
3: I think, so one of the things that happens to Mrs Gaskell in Rome is that she gets really good at telling stories. She's always a kind of ghost storyteller, and that's her favourite thing to do. And that's what she did in Rome. And for me, it, it seems to me to be a point when she... Really became herself as a writer. She'd already had success before she came, but the subsequent works she start one she starts getting really interested in America, and she wants to she desperately wants to go to America, um, and subsequently writes this extraordinary book called *Lois the Witch*, which is about a young English girl who goes to America to Salem during the witch trials. And you can kind of feel all other ways in which Norton is in her work, and I make some of those connections in the book, which. Perhaps again, and because this is this sort of intensely subjective exercise, perhaps only I will see those, and that's the joy of it for me. But it's a moment when she becomes a professional to herself, and she was intensely professional. She, by the end of her life, had saved enough money on her own from her books that she could buy a house without her husband's knowledge, which was an extraordinary thing to do. She had kind of been yearning to leave Manchester for a while. He was absolutely tethered to it in his, um, the Cross Street Chapel, which is where he preached. And she bought this enormous house called The Lawn, and she was going to spring it on him as a surprise, and it was going to be where her unmarried daughters could live and where she could work from then on. And she actually died there in the house before she could move in. But this was this, this was how incredibly professionally successful she was by the end of her life, that she could do something like that.
2: You're to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Nell Stevens, and we're talking about her book, Mrs. Gaskell and Me Two Women, Two Love Stories, Two Centuries Apart. And Nell, you mentioned Jenny Uglow's biography of, of Mrs. Gaskell. Now, she doesn't think her and Norton were in love as such, but they had a relationship that was more like that of a, perhaps an elder son. Yeah. Um, And I wonder if the other part of this book is your own love story and I wonder to what extent you know your conception of their relationship was coloured by what you were going through at the time.
3: Absolutely and that's sort of the exercise for me is to kind of push this idea that you know people say there should be a biography for every age that things we see in historical figures lives change depending on the concerns of our culture and this book is a sort of perhaps a provocation to say there should be a biography for every person and Further to that, there needs to be a biography for every minute of every person's life because what you see changes instantly depending on what you're experiencing yourself. So, of course, I was seeing parallels absolutely everywhere between my life and hers because of what I was going through, which was this long-distance relationship with this literary American in Boston. And to find Gaskell's correspondence with him as I was writing similar correspondence across the Atlantic was an invitation to see something there and to identify with that. And I identified with it incredibly strongly. But because there is only the material that we have, we can never know. And that was one of the things that I really enjoyed working on in this book was this idea of certain elements of life being completely off the page. Things like desire. You cannot see them in a letter. You can see the language of desire if it's there, but you can't pull apart a word and see what's behind it. And that was joyful to think about really to say okay but what if it was this and let's run with that and let's see how my life changes how I see hers and also how her life changes how I live mine which it does by the end of the book.
2: I want you to tell us about Max that literary American but before (laughs) we do tell us how you came to Mrs Gaskell in the first place.
3: I think slowly is the answer. I remember reading I think it must have been Mary Barton as a teenager and I had this phase of just devouring Victorian novels when I was about 16, 17. And it it was lumped in with a few others at that time. I got really into Hardy as well and various other um, 19th century writers And they were completely joyful experiences for me. And then I went to university and got really distracted by theory for a while. And it took me a little while to come back to this idea that actually what I loved most of all was was 19th century literature and that it was okay to focus on that. I had this idea that if I could just write about Marx, I would be far more important and relevant somehow. And actually, I kind of realised that where my interest really was, was was Victorian novels and that they too could be important. So I did a Master's in Victorian Literature at Birkbeck, which was extraordinary, just an incredible experience. I was working at the time and I would go to the in the evenings to these seminars that just felt like heaven after being in an office. And I'd been away from academia for a while. So it was a really joyful reintroduction to reading. And as part of that course, I took a module called Death in the 19th Century or something like that. And on that course was, was Mary Barton again. So I read that and then I I kind of, felt the connection to it in some level and read more read Lois the witch which is a very I mean it's about Salem witch trials there's lots of death in that and then I started reading her letters and it was like meeting a friend it really felt extremely personal and intimate her letters are extraordinary and once I'd found those that was it really that was a, a really strong bond that I felt and it laid there for a while until I got round to doing my PhD. And I always knew that, that she would be my starting point for that.
2: And you have fun in the book with the, the sort of obsessiveness and I guess specificity of um, PhD subject matter, basically, yes. don't you?
3: <laughs> I was a very grouchy PhD student. I w- wasn't really sure I wanted to be there. I'd just done my MFA at BU. I had this kind of vague sense that if I could really organise my life really well, that I could do my PhD, write a book, come out of the PhD ready to take an academic job, which was this incredibly sort of formulaic and increasingly unachievable for people in the job market and academia, this sort of transition. But there I was doing my PhD, not really wanting to do academic writing. And because of the culture in in academia, particularly in the UK, where there really aren't enough jobs, there's no money in it. PhD students are living on almost nothing. I was surrounded by people who were absolutely focused on their work because they'd sacrificed so much to be there and they were absolutely focused on getting a job and I felt completely humbled by being near them and also utterly unlike them because I was so unfocused and I didn't really know what I was doing. I had this vague plan but it didn't quite fit with who I felt myself to be at that point and so I always felt a bit of an odd one out in the room and I do have some fun in the book at, I hope not the expense of my peers at at King's, but perhaps at the expense of academic culture, um, because it is hilarious. The kind of mismatch between the sense of urgency and the incredibly niche things that are being discussed in these seminar rooms is very, very funny to me. And there are moments you just sort of look out the window and you see that someone is on a bus and real life is going on and then you snap back into the room and there you all are talking about pigs and Jude the Obscure and and you just have this horrible sense that you may be wasting your life.
2: So where does Max come into the picture then at what point?
3: So Max actually is in Bleeker House under the guise of the novelist friend. He was a, a friend from my MFA who I was just horribly in love with the entire time I was there and we end up getting together in the period of my life directly after that covered by Bleaker House. So I've got back from the island, I've arrived in London, I'm starting my PhD. Max is in Paris on the same fellowship that took me to the Falklands. He's in Paris writing. And he kind of gives in, in some level, to my absolute love for him and decides that he can reciprocate. And that begins this this relationship that spans the length of the PhD, really, and was mostly conducted at long range. It was... He went back to Boston, I was in London, it was Skype, it was emails and texts and, and that was so surreal for me at the time because I was spending my days in silence in, in the Rare Books reading room at the British Library, reading letters between Gaskell and Norton and then I would come home and read my own relationship via text with this other person in Boston so it was a very sort of readily experience as, of a relationship in lots of ways.
2: Yeah, and and I've been in this exact same you have. relationship. have. <laughs> um, and yes, it's the distance is
3: tough. And the time difference. Yes. Because it's it's an absolute dislocation. You can't match up your experiences. And the whole setup of it somehow feels designed to make you feel alone. And you have this incredible disconnect with your life. So it, a certain point in the book, Max and I decide we're going to get married, and I'm incredibly lonely in London and bored doing my PhD and having a really, really quiet, fairly sad existence. And at the same time, I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm going to get married. I'm, I've found the love of my life, and I have none of the feelings attached with that because I'm fundamentally lonely at the same time. And people who can overcome that are very inspiring. I'm afraid a spoiler to the readers is that I did not.
2: Well, I'm glad you did that because, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's pretty much... Given away quite early on that things are not going to work (laughs) out with Max. However, I would like you to tell us the story of, despite that not working out, your honeymoon.
3: Of course. So um, one of the things I did to pass the time as a very reluctant PhD student was enter online competitions. Um, You can go to the contest pages of... I used to mainly pick women's magazines for some reason, and you just put in your email address to all of these various things. And it would, was briefly diverting to me as a sort of exercise in fantasy that, you know, maybe I'll just, maybe one day a massive, brilliant suitcase, Louis Vuitton suitcase is going to arrive in my house because I want it. Or maybe I'm going to get a whole wardrobe from Warehouse or, you know, all of these things that are put up for grabs on these contest pages. And I was sitting in the British Library one day and I see an email and it says, congratulations, you have won a luxury honeymoon to India. And it did absolutely looked like spam and I had no memory of entering a competition to win a honeymoon and a few days prior to this having happened Max has broken up with me so I'm in a state of absolute emotional crisis on that front but it did turn out to be real and I had entered a contest to win a honeymoon to India and so I went on a honeymoon with my best friend and had a really really strange time in India surrounded by people who were asking where my husband was because they were expecting the competition winners to be newlyweds which was a fair idea Um, and then I turn up with Amanda my friend who's posing as maid of honor and um, confuse everyone and it was this horrible I mean wonderful in lots of ways because it was a free holiday and it was great but horrible experience of all of my questions being externalized because I'm walking around absolutely heartbroken thinking where is Max? Like, what has happened? Why isn't he here? And every time we get to a new hotel, someone on the staff says, where's your husband? <laughs> Why isn't your husband here? And all you can think is, that's a really good question. But I did get a free holiday, so certainly not complaining.
2: And we have given away that the relationship with Max doesn't work out. Yes. But there are other things that that occur in the book which we, we won't necessarily give away. And just to finish off, I just wanted to talk about what you're going to do next.
3: So... As anyone who's read Bleaker House will know, I desperately do want to write fiction. And this book, the second book, has confirmed that for me in lots of ways. I have a really interesting time using my own life and my work, but it's also really, really tough. And there are legal ramifications and there are emotional ramifications. And I'm aware that I have asked a lot of the people in my life to be in two books of memoir and asked a lot of myself as well. So I am writing a novel. There's this wonderful moment in Mrs Gaskell's letters after she has gone through all of this horrible trauma with the reaction to the life of Charlotte Bronte. And she writes, I'm going to confine myself to lies, brackets fiction, in future it is safer. And that's very much where I am too. Not only because I am slightly um, tired, I think, of writing about myself, but also because I... my True love is novels, and I desperately want to write one.
2: Well, I, I did actually mean to ask you something about <laughs> that, and you've just reminded me. Um I mean, how does that work? What does the person that is called Max in this book think about
3: it? He has been very gracious. I am aware that he at no point asked for his personal life to be covered in any way in this incredibly public forum. And I find these questions genuinely interesting on a sort of intellectual level like where does my story end at what point does he walk into my life and and at what point do I actually start borrowing from his for this book and and where is that line and what am I allowed to say and what shouldn't I say or should I be able to say whatever I want or should I never have even begun this project and they're really difficult interesting questions that you have to grapple with if you're going to write something that says nonfiction on the back. I do think my books are on the kind of boundary between nonfiction and fiction if we didn't have to put a label on it I would prefer not to but the fact is you know he is a real person and he has real feelings about this he read the book multiple drafts of the book and that was I think quite a difficult process for both of us he has given it his blessing and has kept very
2: quiet subsequently
3: (laughs) and that's absolutely his right and I totally understand why
2: So I've been talking to Nell Stevens. We've been talking about her book, Mrs. Gaskell and Me, which is out now from Picador. Nell, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you so much
3: for having me. This was great.